Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Andrew Sodergren, a doctor of psychology who's an expert in gender dysphoria, and he's going to help us understand the rapid onset gender dysphoria that we've been reading about and how to approach a child who thinks that they are the opposite gender of their anatomy. But first, we'd like to plug an event where Chris and I will be presenting during Palm Sunday weekend. We're going to shamelessly promote an event that you and I are involved with. That's right. We are. We want to invite all all Catholic pre-health professions. If you're thinking about nursing or dentistry or the practice of medicine or podiatry or chiropractic or anything else, if you're a pre-health profession student, we want you to join us April 8th through the 10th at the University of Dallas for our MedCon 2022 conference. It's a conference for pre-med, nursing, and all the other pre-healthcare professional students, as I mentioned. Chris will actually be giving the Friday evening keynote address on how you can be an authentic Catholic as well as an excellent physician, nurse, or therapist. We'll be joined by lots of great people, uh, not the least among them, Bishop James Conley of Lincoln, Nebraska, the Episcopal Advisor for the Catholic Medical Association. Panels all day that Saturday will tackle the subjects of vocation in medicine and how to pick a specialty, gender ideology in medical school, women's health care that supports a Catholic vision of the human person, and understanding the legal protections that exist for students and healthcare professionals. It's an opportunity for you as a student or your son or your daughter who may be a student to meet and to learn from Catholic healthcare professionals who are practicing medicine fully in line with the Catholic faith. There will be ample opportunities for you or your loved ones to network, to meet potential mentors, uh, for spiritual growth, and fun with your pre-health colleagues. You can visit www.cathmed.org, click on the MedCon 2022 logo to learn more and register. And on Saturday evening, the fun involves trivia night team competition with prizes and questions written by you might guess who. Yep, that would be me. And the topic of this episode of Dr. Doctor is also the topic of one of those four panels we will have at MedCon, because today we'll talk about gender dysphoria in kids, particularly rapid onset gender dysphoria. And Chris, why do you think this is such an important topic to hit now? Yeah, listeners, you know, draw draw near. Uh, I think this is actually one of the most important topics that we could cover at the moment. Uh, I think many would agree with us if we say that all matters gender are really under attack at the moment. As a society, we seem to be unable to agree on a lot of things, but we really seem to be unable to agree on something as seemingly simple and straightforward as a given person's gender. Uh, I would have never thought we could disagree on that. I'm not sure how we got here. Um, And how do we get past this difficult point in our history? I'm not sure of that. Uh, either. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I'm hoping that we learn some of those answers uh, from our guest and that he'll send us in the right direction. You know, Tom, avid listeners will remember that we've had guests who were healthcare providers at Catholic institutions. We even had a provider that was fired because she refused to participate in the treatment related to gender reassignment in a nine-year-old. Now, we've learned that the DSM-3, which I suspect we'll be talking about with- I think they're up to five now. Oh, that's right. It's such a habit. (laughs) I'm showing my age that I still call it three. When I was a student, (laughs) it was a three. Um, Now it doesn't even recognize thinking that you're the wrong gender unless it creates a problem for you. Uh, We've talked about that before. It's a very subtle yet profound change in the way diagnosis codes are used uh, in coding and creating medical charges now, just to show that we've 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 really moved a long way on this topic. And a quick review of the news reveals, you know, males who are identifying as females winning male championships and sporting events, and oh it's Im- it's impossible to keep up with. 
You may remember during President Obama's administration, we saw federal guidelines through the Department of Education that were actually dictating the specifics of restrooms and how they had to be designed in schools and who was to use those. So I bring that out as an example that we live in some pretty gender crazed times. I think it's fair to say that the very essence of what it is to be male or female uh, is really under attack by what could be an overreaching strategy of moral relativism. And our listeners need to lean in uh, and listen closely. Uh, And, you know, before we say much more about it, I also want to point out, Tom, that when we're talking about people that are suffering from gender-related disorders, we don't for an instant want to suggest um, that we're placing blame on these individuals. This is a very real problem experienced by very real people, and in this case, very real children of God, uh, and they need to be approached with charity uh, and compassion, um, but we don't want to lie to them by telling them that they have something uh, that they don't. The thing that really brought this to the forefront for me, because we've had uh, listeners who have told us they wanted to hear about this, but the, I think a good jumping off point was this article published November 18th of last year on Medscape.com and was titled Transgender Docs Warn About Gender Affirmative Care for Youth. And when you look at it, this is the national and international heads of associations promoting what they call transgender health. And each of the people leading these organizations themselves identify as transgender, yet they see that people are being too aggressive in being gender affirming. Does that surprise you, Chris? Well, actually, nothing surprises me. (laughs) (laughs) Because of this show and many of the guests that we've had on the things that we've learned, nothing surprises me. But, But I think our listeners should find that very concerning. Yeah, this Erica Anderson, um, PhD, president of the U.S. Professional Association for Transgender Health, said that due to some of the what I'll call sloppy healthcare work, we're going to have more young adults who will regret going through this gender affirming process. And she goes on to say, believing that gender affirmative approach is simply taking what the children say and running with it is to act as if a child is reliably reporting in this area but we don't believe them when they're reporting in other areas. So she's actually being reasonable, I think, in saying that you can't just take something a kid says once and say, yep, that's the gospel truth. If we did that, we would be calling the police for all of the monsters that are in the closet of our children's (laughs) bedrooms. Or under the bed. Yes. Mine were always under the bed. (laughs) So, and, and she even goes on to say that every, you know, there are so many people out there who say that everything should be affirming and there's no room for dissent. And they promote something else reasonable. And that is, this should not be argued about in the lay press. It should be worked out in scientific um, arenas. It's like, wow. And they even go on to say, well, Dr. William Malone, an endocrinologist in uh, Idaho, says what's occurring now with all this gender affirmation is an unregulated experiment on children. And frequently clinics aren't even properly collecting long-term outcomes. I think, sadly, our children have found themselves caught in the middle of these politically motivated gender uh, agenda-based arguments. And they're they're the least of us, and they are the greatest victims uh, in many of these discussions and arguments. And and, uh, finally, even other countries, Finland, uh, Sweden, they are saying there needs to be much more mental health evaluation done of these children before anything else is done with them. So at least recognizing that need, and that's why we have our guest tonight, because he is someone who can and does do this kind of mental health evaluation with children. Well, Tom, I can't wait to get on uh, with our guests. But before we do that, we don't want to disappoint our listeners. So we better go to the medical trivia question of the day. And so we will. The category, diseases that are more common in one sex than the other. Well, since this episode affirms the difference between males and females, men and women, so does this question. So, I'm going to list four different medical conditions, and your job is to simply figure out, are they more common in men or than women? The first one is autism. The second is lupus, otherwise known as systemic lupus erythematosus. The third, multiple sclerosis. And finally, alcohol use disorder. As usual, you've got to hang around till the end of the show to hear the answers. But right after the break here on Dr. Doctor, we'll be back with Dr. Andrew Sodergren on gender dysphoria. 
And we're back with our special guest today, Dr. Andrew Sodegren, PsyD, that's P-S-Y-D, Doctor of Psychology. And Andrew has a great background for this subject. He's the Director of Psychological Services at Rural Woods in uh, the Cincinnati area since he established it in 2011 with some others. He has a master's and doctor of psychology degree from Divine Mercy University, and he's trained in taking care of adults, children, marriages, groups, and he does psychological testing and vocational assessment. He's an active member of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association, and he even teaches an annual course on psychology and neuroscience at the John Paul II Institute for uh, Studies on Marriage and Family in Washington, D.C. And importantly, is contributing author to a forthcoming book being published this spring by Emmaus Road Press entitled Sexual Identity, The Harmony of Philosophy, Science, and Revelation. He is an author in the book, and so is one of our previous multi-guests, episode guests, Dr. Paul Hrues from uh, St. Louis, a pediatric endocrinologist. Andrew, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be here. And I guess simply, what is gender dysphoria? It's a great place to start. Um, the difficulty is in order to understand gender dysphoria, we first of all have to get clear about what we mean by the term gender, uh, which gets thrown around so often today and often used in different ways. Uh, traditionally, gender uh, was a, a term that was used more in, in linguistics uh, to describe uh, you know, uh, um, in some languages like in Spanish, for instance, you have, you have male and female nouns and they need different uh, types of, of adjectives or different types of endings to complement them. Um, but when applied to humans, gender is traditionally understood to be the same as, as our biological sex. Uh, these two things are, are basically synonymous. And in fact, the, the term gender implies this because gender has the same root th that we use in the word to generate as in to generate life. Uh, and from which we get the word genitals, which is the main uh, way in which we determine uh, the sex of, of, of a, an organism, male or female. Uh, and so in, initially, uh, these terms meant the same thing. But increasingly in the 20th century, uh, the term gender began to be applied to one's internal or subjective sense of, of myself uh, as uh, um, distinct from the objective reality in the body. And so my body may signify that I'm male or female, uh, but if I inwardly feel something different, um, that, that can be talked about now through this concept of gender and gender identity. Uh, and so in, um, I think in DSM-3 was the first time gender identity disorder uh, was included. The idea there was to, to uh, provide a diagnosis that described the experience of people who have uh, an understanding of themselves, a gender identity, a subjective view that is different from what the body indicates. Uh, and since traditionally in our field in psychology, uh, it, it's always been a hallmark of mental health to, to see and, and apprehend reality, to perceive reality accurately, right? That my perception corresponds to something real and objective. And so the idea here with gender identity disorder was for those people who perceive themselves as, a, as a, a gender different from the body, there's something disordered going on here, right? There's some form of mental disorder here. And over time, what has happened with uh, uh, DSM-5, for instance, uh, which uh, I believe Chris mentioned in the, in the intro, the emphasis has shifted to gender dysphoria uh, instead of gender identity disorder. The, the core of, of the diagnosis is still this, dis, this disharmony or incongruence uh, between uh, my subjective sense and what the body reveals regarding gender. Uh, but there's a greater emphasis now on the need for there to be distress about this. There's a, there's a clear emphasis and, and effort here to, to depathologize uh, gender identities that differ from the body. So if there's no distress, there's no diagnosis. Is that right? That's correct. That is and correct. And Andrew, you said that so well. I mean, that, that was my point in the intro that I think can, can be too easily lost is that we made a big change from where we said, it's a disorder if you think you're something different than what you are. Mm -hmm. Now we say it's no longer a diagnosis unless it causes you distress. So That's correct. And, and to be honest, it, it points out a problem in the way 
psychological and, and psychiatric diagnosis is, is made in general because we don't have a clear agreed upon understanding of what health is anymore. Uh, and so it becomes very subjective. It's all about one's subjective distress. Mm. And if my gender identity is causing me subjective distress or some type of impairment in my life, then the thinking is, okay, that may warrant a diagnosis. But we don't, uh, the DSM at least, doesn't embrace any kind of objective standard uh, in regard to, to gender identity to, anymore, or, or really most things in the sexual realm. So Andrew, what are patients who fit this category experiencing? What are they going through? That's a great question. And so I, th I think, it, it, first of all, it, it, it's helpful to try to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who who is experiencing this because gender dysphoria is a real thing. It's, it, it is a source of suffering for people. And uh, to help with that, I'd, I'd like to just go through some of the more common symptoms. Right. Uh, some of these are more relevant for children. Uh, some uh, are experienced both by children and by, by adults. So in children, for instance, uh, you may see things like uh, preferring to play with uh, toys or engage in games that are more typical of the opposite sex in a particular culture. Um, they may uh, identify more with um, other sex roles uh, in make-believe uh, or in stories. They may identify with opposite sex characters in stories more um, or prefer playmates of the opposite sex. Um, naturally speaking, kids, uh, especially in the grade school years, tend to segregate by sex. Uh, this is a natural phenomenon that's been observed across cultures. Uh, but when you see someone who uh, rather than associating with same-sex playmates, prefers opposite-sex playmates. That can be an indicator. Um, you may hear expressions of having the belief that I'm more typical or more I have more qualities like the opposite sex. Uh, I may express a desire to be the opposite sex. I may express a hatred or dislike of my sexual anatomy, a desire to get rid of my primary or secondary sex characteristics um, or to acquire those of the opposite sex. In my own words, to have gender dysphoria is kind of like not being at home with your body and your sexuality. And that's a difficult thing because, frankly, we're with our bodies all the time, mm -hmm. right? So it's always a reality that we're facing every moment that somehow I don't feel at home with. Uh, I don't feel okay when I look at my body, uh, when 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 I... I um, uh, just go about life experiencing uh, my, my male body. Something about it doesn't sit right with me. I don't feel at home with it. Uh, so Andrew, is do you have a sense of, is this a more common diagnosis because it is a diagnosis or does the incidence of these feelings and otherwise healthy individuals, is that incidence going up? Well, I think the uh, there, there's evidence uh, that the, the incidence of this is definitely going up, uh, and in particular among adolescents. Um, the traditional profile of, of a gender dysphoria case um, was an, a, a grade school age male. So we, we typically distinguish between early onset and late onset. Okay, Early onset is anything uh, before puberty, and then late onset would be sort of puberty and, and afterward. Mm -hmm. And the typical case uh, in the, the clinical literature uh, was the, the, the grade school age boy. Most children, by the time they reach kindergarten, can, um, can tell you confidently whether they are, are male or female and have some sense that this is a stable, unchanging characteristic about them. And so it's not hard then, starting from about kindergarten age, to pick up those kids who don't seem to, to quite be hitting that developmental milestone for whatever reason, or uh, you know, start engaging in some of these these other behaviors that that I that I mentioned. That's the traditional case. Nowadays, we're, we're seeing something a little bit different uh, from that with these adolescents who are are showing up in large numbers uh, at gender clinics. And so, the dysphoria that we've talked about are that you know that sense of dis-ease. Uh, I'm sure there are those that would say, if we as a society were just more accepting of of these feelings, there wouldn't be any dis-ease or dysphoria, if you will. Is that correct? Or does the dysphoria come from an, an internal clock, so to speak, of something is wrong? I'm not, I'm not right. Yeah, it's a wonderful question. So 
So first of all, I think we do have to accept the, the, the possibility or, or, or the reality that being a minority of any kind mm. does uh, increase our stress level. Sure. All right. So whatever, whatever category I perceive myself to be in, if, if, if it's a minority group, I will tend to carry more stress in my body as a result of that. So uh, that plays into what's called the, 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 you know, kind of the social stress or social minority hypothesis. But that does not seem to account for uh, the, the full uh, gamut of psychological problems that tend to coincide with gender dysphoria. And even experts in, in the field like Kenneth Zucker, who I would say is probably the you know, internationally foremost expert on, on gender identity disorder, he's been researching this and treating this uh, for um, about 40 years and is still... Um, uh, well, well, very highly published and well-respected in the field. He has argued in a couple different publications uh, that, that he believes that, that there's a s- distress and disorder impa- uh, uh, inherent in this condition, mm-hmm. in, in the, the disconnect between my perception and my body, that that, re- that situation itself, apart from any social forces, is distressing and creates additional emotional pain and burdens for people. And, and I, I tend to agree with him. Andrew, reading between the lines, it sounds like now the change is there are more girls and boys. There are they're a little older. They're adolescents instead of pre-adolescents, and the onset is more rapid. We got this thing called rapid uh, onset gender dysphoria. Is that true? And and what's going on with that? Yeah. So rapid onset gender dysphoria is a term that was uh, coined by. Uh, public health researcher, Dr. Lisa Littman, uh, just a, a few years ago uh, in 2018 in a study she published. Uh, but the phenomenon that she described has been described by many other people as well. Uh, so over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a huge shift in uh, the numbers of, of people and, and the kind of people showing up at gender clinics. So I'll give you one example. In the, from the, the, the Gender Identity Development Service in London, uh, in 2009, there were 39 referrals uh, to that, that gender clinic. And in 2016, merely seven years later, there was about 1,500 such referrals. Wow. So a huge, huge increase. And then if you look at not only at that clinic, but across several different countries now, the breakdown of male-female, you see that uh, as well the sex ratio has, has flipped. Uh, in, the, in the past, it was about two to one favoring males uh, in terms of, you know, who gets diagnosed with gender dysphoria. And now it's one to two favoring girls. Hmm. And that also seems to, to hold up when you look at um, surveys where you ask people to, to self-identify their gender identity. Uh, you seem, see similar ratios. It's about uh, t- twice as many girls as boys uh, will now identify as trans or show up at an at a adolescent gender clinic. So what's the rapid part of this refer to? What's rapid yes. that did not used to be rapid? Right. So one of the things that, that uh, Dr. Littman was looking at, and others have looked at this too, is do these kids who are showing up at gender clinics have any history of gender dysphoria? And the surprising thing is that most of them do not. Uh, there's no clinical history. It's not in any of their medical records. You ask their parents about their developmental history they don't identify any cross-dressing or any of those other childhood markers that I talked about. So it seems to kind of come out of nowhere. Hmm. There's no warning signs. It just appears all of a sudden in adolescence. And that's why Dr. Littman coined that term, rapid onset gender dysphoria, uh, which is not yet an, an accepted you know, diagnostic label uh, by any stretch, but it, it's, it has traction because it seems to fit uh, something that we are observing, a lot of people are observing uh, in, in adolescence today. So, Andrew, and uh, when Tom and I were talking about the article earlier, um, they use this phrase, gender-affirming care. And at first glance, that sounds like a positive thing. I mean, as providers, we all want to be affirming of our patients and empowering to them. But there's actually a great deal more to that, I believe, isn't there? What are some of the tenets uh, of this, this so-called model? Yeah, of course we all we all want to be affirming, right? We want to see the good in others, and we want to we want to encourage others. And, and as as uh, medical professionals, 
And as parents, like we feel good when we do that, right? When we're able to like build somebody up. Mm. And so this is really a kind of, I think in many ways, a, a, a euphemistic kind of, of term um, because what the gender affirming model or gender affirming care is really referring to uh, was uh, what was previously referred to as, as the Dutch protocol, uh, which is basically a four-step process uh, that begins with social transition. So accepting uh, a social role and identity uh, of the other gender, followed by puberty suppression, uh, which means the, the um, taking a um, gonadotropin uh, uh, analog, releasing hormone analogs to suppress puberty, uh, and then cross-sex hormones, and ultimately uh, surgery uh, to modify the, the secondary or primary sex er uh, characteristics of the body. Uh, and this is termed gender-affirming care now. Mm. Um, but it's, it, it, it's highly problematic in a number of respects. Um, and I think it's anything but affirming when you look at the person from a Catholic point of view. So, for instance, what do they take for granted that as Catholics, we would say, no, that's not what a human person is or does? Well, it seems to me that um, that one of the, the key assumptions here with, with uh, gender-affirming care uh, is, is that my subjective gender identity uh, is more important and more reliable in defining me than my body, mm -hmm. right? So... It's, it's, there's a subjectivistic element to this. It's, it's my subjective sense that's the most important thing, and that overrides what the objective reality of my body is saying. It further assumes that children can infallibly know this about <laughs> themselves and are prepared at a very young age uh, you know, or by adolescence to begin making major medical decisions, major decisions that are going to affect them the rest of their lives. In a nutshell, it seems to me that, that the gender affirming model assumes that the body uh, is essentially meaningless. Hmm. And implied in that is, is the idea that I can do whatever I want with it, right? The body is, is, it's, it has no inherent meaning for me. I can do whatever I want with it. And ultimately here, there's a rejection of our creatureliness. Hmm. So instead of receiving my life, my being, my body from God, you know, through, through my parents, I recreate myself. I put myself in God's shoes and I decide who I should be, whether I should be male or female or something else. I even rename myself, uh, which is no, is a very significant act. If you just think about yes. the whole, the whole meaning of, of naming someone. It's um, interesting. And several times through the years, we've talked about, we've used this phrase, worshiping at the altar of sort of personal autonomy. But yes. this, this idea that the penultimate goal is to do whatever I want. And this feels like just another example. I, I want my gender to be different. Therefore, uh, it is really snubbing my nose at my creator, uh, as, you, as you point out, all about the feelings. The feelings are what matter, not the realities. Yeah, so definitely seems to be an emphasis here on worshiping that disembodied autonomous will. The will to make myself however I think I should be. And that's a great place to take a break before going into the second half of the interview on gender dysphoria with Andrew Sodergren here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We're talking about gender dysphoria. So, Andrew, let's back up just a little and let me ask you this. What seems to cause this phenomenon or do we have a sense? Well, I would say, first of all, we don't know for sure. It's a, it's a murky picture and, uh, um, you know, the, the science is kind of all over the place with any, um, medical or psychological condition like this, we have to consider the possibility of, of biological causes like genetics and, and hormones, things of that nature. Uh, and there can certainly be a role for those things in the genesis of gender dysphoria, but the research does not support the idea that it is determined uh, by uh, a particular biological cause or, or set of biological causes. These things may uh, play a role, but it's not a, an overarching or determinative role uh, that, that sets someone definitively on this course. There, the evidence, in fact, does suggest a very large role for environmental or what we might say experiential uh, mm -hmm. forces uh, that contribute to gender dysphoria. 
Uh, in fact, there's a lot of psychological uh, research and clinical experience to uh, support uh, the role of, of a number of psychosocial factors that contribute to or at least coincide with gender dysphoria. Um, in the, the clinical literature of the childhood onset cases, uh, there's evidence for a lot of mental health problems in the family, uh, mental health problems oftentimes on the part of parents, mm. uh, also uh, sometimes parents themselves having uh, difficulties or um, conflicting values around gender roles. Um, and, are there specific uh, diagnoses in the family members that are associated? Uh, sometimes uh, is- mood disorders, um, mood disorders, uh, issues uh, with uh, emotion regulation, so anger problems or anxiety problems, depression, uh, things of that nature. Um, and, and marital conflict. Uh, when mom and dad are not harmonious in their relationship, it, it, it sets the whole family kind of off kilter. Uh, and that can lead to all sorts of problems. This just being, being one example of that gender dysphoria kind of being one flavor. Um, but uh, marital difficulties, family dysfunction, um, and especially I would emphasize difficulties of the youngster forming secure attachments with mom and dad. So attachment refers to that emotional bond that we all form with our parents uh, in which we, we, we seek to feel safe and secure in their presence and in their care. Uh, and not all attachment bonds are equal. Some are more secure than others. And there's a huge research literature in psychology on attachment and the effects of secure versus insecure attachments in childhood. And there's some evidence uh, coming out now that's been published showing that uh, gender identity in childhood, some of the key aspects of it uh, do correlate with uh, security of attachment in children, Hmm. such that secure attachment in children seems like those kids have an easier time accepting the gender expressed in their body uh, compared to kids who have a history of insecure attachment. And there's also been, go ahead. That's fascinating. So it gives us something we can do to be preemptive doesn't That's it correct. Absolutely, it does. I've already hit on several things, right? I mean, um, working on our marriages uh, and and trying to foster secure attachments with our uh, for, with our, with our kids with us. Uh, those are great proactive, preemptive things to do. What are some um, of the best ways to establish better attachments with our children? Yeah. So there's a large literature on this now, and a, a lot of parenting books and other types of things incorporate some amount of attachment theory in it because it's grown in prominence and it has a lot of research backing in my field. I like there's one simple acronym that I can I can share with the listeners to to kind of make this easier for them, uh, and and just to give credit where credit's due, I'm borrowing this from Dr. Sue Johnson. Uh, who primarily works with married couples, but this this acronym works for our relationships with our kids too. And it's the acronym A-R-E. A stands for accessible. R is responsive. And E is emotionally engaged. And the idea is the more I embody those three qualities in relationship with my child, the more secure my child is going to, to feel with me. The more confident they're going to have, more confidence they're going to have that I'm I'm there for them, okay, and and it's easy to remember because it, it fits with the question, "Are you there for me?" A R E, are you there for me? And this okay. is does this apply to children of any age? Can we absolutely, absolutely. So the way we might do it, the way it manifests, might look a little different, right? With a small child, like physical proximity is going to be sure. more important than say, you know, a grade school or adolescent or young adult. Uh, but those qualities you know, can, can be useful in a relationship at any stage. Uh, just the specific form might look a little different. So Andrew, we, we often talk on this show about something called anthropology, which is, you know, what a human person is, uh, but we don't hear about it much in the general discussion in, in gender dysphoria. So what is the anthropology of what it means to be created male and female? In other words, how is biological sex essential to our identity as a human person? Right. So from a Catholic standpoint, our body is integral to who we are. We are, as human beings, embodied persons, a unity of of body and soul. And the human body is a sexed body. It reveals to us our maleness and our femaleness. And the, the teaching authority of our church 
basing itself to a large degree on, on the contributions of St. John Paul II, affirms that the sex revealed by the body is more than, than some kind of insignificant biological fact, but actually describes something uh, very crucial, very fundamental to who that person is. Our maleness and our femaleness affects the whole person. We discover it in the body, but it affects us all the way to our core. Uh, and part of our, our, our task as um, sons and daughters of God is to accept the sexual identity that uh, he's given to us uh, through the gift of our bodies. And so we would look at the body as, as not something insignificant that can be changed and modified as, as you know, uh, however we will, but rather something to be received as a gift and embraced. And with that, our sexual identity as sons or daughters of God. Well, that's a beautiful way to say that. And, and because of our beliefs about human dignity, as we read about and hear about treatments for these gender identity related issues, which of the treatments would you say are intrinsically evil as, uh, as they harm the human person as we know it as Catholics? Sure. So I think right away we have to to draw a line uh, when it comes to uh, chemical or, or surgical interventions uh, that attempt to um, simulate the opposite sex. Because essentially, from a Catholic point of view, what we're doing in those cases is we're, we're mutilating a healthy body. We're, we're taking something that is good uh, that, that God has given us, and we are uh, disfiguring it uh, to try to, to make it something that it's not. Mm. And so those chemical interventions, such as cross-sex hormones, those surgical interventions where a male is, is essentially trying to simulate a female or vice versa, uh, I think we have to draw a thick line there and say that those things are morally not acceptable. Um, less severe, but still morally problematic is, is the, the issue of social transition. So while I'm not doing any permanent damage to the body in the case of social transitioning, I'm still, in a sense, trying to simulate the opposite sex, which at the very least is deceptive and oftentimes uh, scandalous uh, as well, especially when, when children are involved. And so these are our uh, treatment approaches that, that we as Catholics um, can't accept uh, especially ones that, that alter uh, the, uh, a healthy body. Uh, and so those are things that, that, that we have to, to oppose for the good of our patients. Okay, here's a squishier question. What if somebody says they want to be called a different name? Mm. Yeah, so this is a tricky question. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you can, you can approach this. It's not one that, that, that I've seen a single sort of right answer to. Um, because it depends a lot on the circumstance and on the nature of your relationship with that person. Okay. So for instance, if someone, um, who, you know, maybe seems to have a, a cross gender identity, maybe I can tell that by, you know, their, 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 uh, their body type or their clothing or something like that. They, they, and they give me their name, they introduce themselves by a certain name. I'm going to take what I'm given and I'm going to, I'm going to use that and I'm going to get to know them on, under that name. It's different when I know someone, I have a, a previous relationship with someone, say a family member, uh, and, and I've known them, let's say, as, as Jim, okay? And now Jim wants me to refer to him as, let's say, Joan, okay? That becomes a, a trickier thing, and people are, are some people are, are more comfortable with that than others. Um, it really depends on the situation. Some of the best pastoral advice I've seen uh, says... Uh, try to find a compromise. So if a person, let's say, again, going back to Jim, if Jim feels distress every time he hears the name Jim, okay, I should take that seriously, but that doesn't mean I need to call him something that I, I completely um, don't believe in. So can we find a compromise? Is there a nickname, for instance, uh, that could be used? Uh, that is more acceptable, less distressing, and doesn't go all the way to affirming a cross-gender identity. Hmm. Uh, I have um, talked to colleagues who have done things such as simply using the, uh, the surname of the individual. So instead of saying Jim, just refer to him, Jim as Smith. 
uh, things like that. So you you try to find workarounds as best you can. And of course, the, there's the whole, um, you know, just using uh, first and, and second person uh, pronouns, I and you, and just avoiding names and, and all that um, as much as possible. Um, so I, I personally, I have difficulty, especially using uh, the cross-sex pronouns referring to someone or, or even they, them. Um, I, I personally have difficulty with that. So I try to find workarounds for those things whenever I can. Hmm. Um, but these things, there is a, a, a huge role for prudence in working out these different situations. So Andrew, what are some of the alternative treatments that we would find not only acceptable, but also beneficial for people who are in this situation? Sure. So uh, traditionally, gender identity disorder and gender dysphoria was uh, treated through psychotherapy of different sorts. And it's important for the listeners to, to understand that at least in terms of the early onset cases, namely childhood gender dysphoria, the vast majority of cases uh, historically tend to resolve before they reach adulthood. Right? And that's, there's ample documentation of that. Uh, so most kids who report gender dysphoria, if they're not encouraged down that path, the gender dysphoria tends to remit typically through puberty. Uh, you know, so by the time the person, uh, is an adult, they are, they're able to accept the, the maleness or femaleness of their body. Uh, and so, uh, psychotherapeutic approaches have been developed over the years to try to help that process along, uh, to help kids, uh, to accept their bodies more, to explore other issues that may be contributing to why they're wanting to identify with the opposite sex. And with the rapid onset cases, these adolescent cases, uh, we know from the research that there's an enormous amount of psychological um, disturbance with these cases. Uh, typically, these, there's often a, a lengthy history of emotional and behavioral problems. And so there's a huge role for psychotherapy to enter in and to try to treat the psychological distress and other problems that these kids are carrying, uh, and and to see if if the gender dysphoria remits as that work is done, or to at least engage in exploratory work around issues of identity, body image, uh, values around sexuality and sex roles, and all of that kind of stuff. That's a much more cautious and conservative approach, and we're starting to see that um, uh, even. Um, you know, prominent people in, in the fields who, you know, are not Christian, but, you know, just uh, um, other professionals or secular scientists are starting to, to, to argue that we need to make more space for exploratory psychotherapy. We, we shouldn't be rushing to transition yeah. across the board. And I think we'll see more of that over time, in large part because of the amount of regret that's starting to be expressed by people who have transitioned and then, and then later decide that that wasn't the right thing for me. Tell us about that. Has that increased the number of people stating their regret? Absolutely. So there are organizations now that are forming uh, to support people uh, who have uh, uh, desisted or detransitioned. And it's not hard online to find some of their stories in in the form of blog posts or videos. Um, Ryan Anderson's book, uh, when Harry Became Sally documents several of these. There's some great stories in there, as does Abigail Schreier's book, um, Irreversible Damage. She has a number um, uh, of stories and people that she interviews as well. And so I think those numbers are increasing, and it's it's tragic, but it's, it's important that those individuals tell their stories because they can help others uh, who are on the, the, you know, the other side of this contemplating transitioning. So, Andrew, I know that uh, there are some listeners who either have a child or a grandchild uh, that they're concerned that maybe has expressed some concern with their gender identity. Um, Help listeners understand what's the first thing they should do uh, if they find themselves in that position. I would say the first thing they they need to do is is to pray and to surrender the situation to God. We have to remember that uh, that our children, our our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews—they're ultimately God's children first, and He has a plan for them, uh, and His love for them and His wisdom is greater than ours. Mm. Uh, and sometimes, you know, people struggle with things that um, uh, may take a long time to resolve. 
uh, and we have to trust that that uh, um, that that God God's providence for them um, is real, and and He'll walk with them throughout their life, and He'll use this in some way uh, to draw them to Him. So that's the first thing: is is to pray and entrust them to God. I think it's also important to to inform ourselves uh, to get good, solid information uh, about the situation and. Thankfully, there are a number of organizations now out there that can give us reliable information. Uh, I would say the first place I, I would encourage listeners to go uh, is to the Person and Identity Project, which can be found at personandidentity.com. This is a, a fantastic website, fantastic organization that provides up-to-date information in regards to gender dysphoria, not only scientifically, but from a Catholic point of view. Um, it's a, it's a great resource. They also will consult with the organizations and Catholic schools and, and what have you. Um, there's also a number of other organizations that people can look to for guidance on this, uh, secular organizations, such as Partners for Ethical Care, uh, which you can find online just by Googling it, Partners for Ethical Care, um, or a UK-based group called Transgender Trend. They have some really great resources, including even um, uh, a children's book. Uh, that can be read uh, with with little kids. Um, the Society for Evidence Based Gender Medicine has some great resources. Uh, and lastly, GenSpect, like Respect, but GenSpect.org. They have guidelines, handouts for parents. Um, here's what to say. Here's what not to say. Uh, all sorts of things um, to help people who are in that crisis mode. Of I didn't see this coming. Now what do I do? Um, well, and Andrew, in the last 30 seconds, how can yes. a parent know if a counselor they're seeing is someone mm. they should trust their child to see? Uh, they should interview them, ask them a few questions about in what, uh, under what circumstances, if any, do they support transitioning? Mm. Uh, and if they support transitioning, I would not go back. Uh, keep looking. Uh, try to find a, a therapist who is willing to do exploratory work. And, um, you know, keep an open mind uh, about, about this question of gender rather than pushing transitioning. Well, Andrew, it has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your knowledge and your insight on this difficult, challenging, and very important topic. We'll have you back again. Thanks for joining us on Dr. Doctor. My pleasure. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer of this episode's medical trivia question. Now, this is a hard one. Disease is more common in one sex than the other. First of all, autism. Answer is men. Survey Five says to men. one ratio. Isn't that amazing? Right. How about lupus? Lupus. That goes the other way. That's about 10 to one in favor of women. Wow. Although the older they get the the more the men catch up. So that's only two to one women to men after menopause age. And then multiple sclerosis. This one, sadly, again, in favor of women. And it's been increasing in the last 50 years. It's gone from two to one in favor of women to now three to one. And I think this last one is a slow pitch. Alcohol use disorder. It, it is men. It's almost two to one in favor of men to women. So there you have the answers to the trivia question. Now, Chris, take it away with our top threes for this episode. Well, you know, a pre-top three has to be, it was another great episode. What a terrific guest Andrew is and what a holy, hardworking man. Amen. Um, so I think one of the important things that I take away is this, this important note, and that is gender-related problems um, and related issues are really on the rise. He gave some pretty impressive numbers looking at the number of patients treated just a few years ago until now. A little more common in girls than in boys. Uh, but importantly, the, the problem is on the rise. And then next, you ask him, what can we do in a preventative sort of way? And he talked about parenting skills that are important uh, and that are related really to attachment yeah. uh, with children, infants, and adolescents. And he gave us a great acronym, R, A-R-E. A stands for accessible. Are you emotionally and physically accessible? R is responsive. And then E is emotionally engaged. It's another way to say, are you there for me uh, as a child? Because he pointed out that when there's an attachment issue uh, with the parents, that that may set the child up for these kinds of problems. 
And I love um, that acronym because we can apply it to any relationship we have. It's kind yeah. of our own little um, examination of conscience. Yeah, it's actually great marital advice or any relationship, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and then lastly, you know, we ask him, what do you do if, if you think that your child has this? And I love the way that he said the first thing that you do is that you pray and then you surrender this to an all-loving uh, God and then you become informed. Um, and, and really said it in that order. Uh, you don't just pray and you don't just surrender because the next thing is you become informed. And listeners, we're going to put together a great list of resources uh, that will be on our website in the show notes for this episode that can really take you uh, to some terrific places to get a lot more information so that you can follow that commandment to be informed. And uh, our good producer, Andrea, is going to put those in there for you. We hope that you find something uh, worthwhile. Uh, the tide might be turning because, as Andrew said, there are more people desisting. There are uh, people changing back, and their stories are being heard. And you know, so and we- to, leave, to leave our listeners, Tom, I think we want to reiterate that um, these children, adults, children, whomever, have to be approached uh, with charity and love and okay. compassion. Uh, and we, we do that by affirming them as children of God, not affirming the problems that they're having. Amen to that, Chris. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We invite you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on the favorite podcast app. You can also find this and all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those of you that want to dive a little deeper into some of the topics, check out our website for bonus leaks and information uh, and our post for each of the episodes. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.